right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And as you are headed there, all right, kids, if you'll head up this way, I'm going to sit here on the steps. I'd love for you to gather around me. I'm going to read some to us this morning from this biggest story, Bible storybook. Uh, we've read from this before, and we have some copies of it in corner books here. But uh, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Okay. You're doing okay? Excellent. All right. We're making your way here. This is excellent. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the page, and then I'll show everybody the picture. Does that sound like a good plan? Okay, good. It says this. You might think that God rescued his people from Egypt so that they could finally call the, their own shots for themselves. No more Pharaoh, no more masters, no more rules, right? Wrong. When God set his people free, it wasn't so that they could serve no one, but so that they could serve him. Israel was God's treasured possession, the Lord's most favorite thing in the whole world, which is saying a lot considering he owns the whole world. And they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means they were to be a special people, living with God and for God and according to God's ways. God called his people to meet him at a mountain. The people got ready and the mountain got loud. There was thunder and lightning and smoke and trumpets and enough fire to make s'mores for the whole camp. It was a great thing that God was going to meet with them. But since he is a great God, it was also a fearful thing. God wanted his people close, but he didn't come to make them comfortable. Y'all see the big mountain? Y'all see the big mountain over here? Okay. And thunder and lightning. It says this, Our God cannot be seen, but he likes to be heard. So when God met his people at the mountain, he met them with words. Ten words, actually. We know them as the Ten Commandments. One God no idols, respect God's name, take a rest, honor your parents, don't murder, don't cheat on your husband or wife, don't steal, don't lie, don't dream about other people's stuff. So some people don't like commands. They think they are mean and unfair. But these were God's way of saying, this is what I'm like. This is how to serve me. This is how to be happy. Remember, God didn't give the commandments and then save his people. Israelites would have never deserved salvation that way. Instead, God rescued them all on his own and then gave the commandments as the way for the free people to stay free. If they did things God's way, they would be free from the silly ways of the world, free from sin, and most importantly, free from themselves. Y'all see Moses with the Ten Commandments? Y'all see him? All right. So today, we're going to start studying the Ten Commandments. And so as you listen, I want you to try to notice which commandment we do today. But all summer long, parents, this is the goal, all summer long, I hope you can remember all Ten Commandments in order. Ooh, parents, I want you to try to learn all Ten Commandments in order. That's for all of us. So if y'all go back to your seat and listen carefully as we start our study of the Ten Commandments. 
Thank you so much. Boys and girls, y'all did so good listening carefully. Uh, as I mentioned, obviously we are headed into the 10 words, the 10 commandments, right? These are described, as you heard even in this book, uh, but they're described as 10 words. Some would say 10 sayings or 10 matters of importance. There's, there's different ways people break down the Ten Commandments, so even when you see them like listed on uh, the tablets, sometimes people just break them in half, right? One, uh, one through five on one, then six through ten on another. Some break them up one through three, so really the commandments that are directly dealing with God, and then uh, four through ten on the other tablet. Some people do one through four, and then uh, five through ten, which is all people interaction kind of stuff. But uh, some people look at them all together. So you might have one sermon on all ten commandments. Some might do what we're doing. We're going to look at each of them individually, but certainly as we go, I think we will see how they build upon one another and how they all connect together in unique ways. So that's the plan over the next 10 weeks. We will individually cover a commandment a week, which is certainly a shift from where we have been in covering sometimes chapters at a time of, of narrative. And now we come into just like today we'll look at three verses. On, on another day, you will just look at like four words. We together, you shall not murder. That's four. You shall not steal, right? So we will, we will cover those in that way. So in some ways, it will feel a little bit more like a topical sermon, if that makes sense, but driven from the text itself. Uh, so today, we're going to start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start, right? Uh, so, so listen along on these first few verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. These three verses, right? That's where we're going to stop today. Uh, some people put verse 3 and verse 4 and following together, making uh, having no other gods before me and uh, having no idols as, as one, and, then, and making this first verse 1 and 2, really verse 2, this, uh, this command really or a reminder. And so we see it in, in both ways. So kind of 2 and 3, we're putting, I'm putting them together. Now, Martin Luther is actually credited with saying that if you break commandments 2 through 10, you've actually also breaking commandment 1. So if you break any of the other ones, it's that you're also breaking this one. You're making something else God, whether it's yourself or someone else, something else. Anytime we choose to sin, we are placing something or someone above God. And, and when we study the Ten Commandments, uh, we want to guard ourselves, right? It's, it's very tempting for us to simply see the do's and don'ts, particularly the don't, thou shalt not, don't do this, don't do that. And, and while we are 
anti-legalism, we are not anti-law. There's a difference, right? Uh, being legalistic is uh, what we saw the Pharisees doing. In the New Testament specifically, as Jesus confronts them all the time, it's a, it's a letter of the law kind of matter for them. In fact, they would add laws upon laws in order to try to keep the law and demonstrate their holiness. That was legalism. But what we see here is a, an example of the law that is not intended to point to our righteousness, but instead to point to the perfections of God himself. This is, this is designed to separate the people of God from the rest of the world and say, this is what our God is like. This is what he looks like. So it's, it's intended to point people to who God is. In fact, many would argue that this very beginning, these first couple verses, aren't really a command at all, right? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's really not a command. It's, it's a reminder We've talked about this already. This is the, the nature of the people of Israel. They need reminders and often. He, he has to tell them, here's who's speaking to you. It's Yahweh again. Remember the one who brought you out of Egypt? Remember, like, this is me again. By the way, the one who's speaking out of thunder and lightning and cloud and fire, the only one who can do that. But let me remind you again who I am. He does this over and over and over again, and it sure does seem like it's for us too. We need those constant, consistent reminders. And so today, it's good for us as we look at this to remember. We want to begin by remembering Egypt. Remember Egypt. Moses is, or the Lord is speaking through Moses and telling them, remember where you've come from. Remember what has taken place. Remember Israel, the, the people of Israel were brought out of slavery, rescued. In fact, I Israel's only contribution to the rescue plan was obedience. Like, follow after me. Do what I say. Pack up all your stuff. Actually walk across the dry land. All those were steps of obedience, but it wasn't because they did anything in particular to bring that about, right? You think about the 10 plagues. Did they bring about the frogs or the flies or the gnats? Did they bring about the hail or the darkness? Certainly didn't bring about the death of the firstborn. They, they in and of themselves did none of those things. Their steps were to obey. Paint blood over the doorposts. Gather all of your things. Make sure that you're actually ready to go. Pack. <laughs> well, follow the pillar of cloud. Follow the pillar of fire. Cross on dry land over and over and over. Their task is simply to obey. They are to walk out of slavery into a life of freedom. That's their job. Walk. Walk across the Red Sea into a life liberated from the enemy. That's their job. Walk. Obey. Jen, Jen Wilkin points out that before you can obey God, 
as, as the God of the ten words of life, we would call these. You must revere God as the God of the ten plagues of death. Right? Think, think back again. I just mentioned some of those things that God did in Egypt. These plagues of death. You say, wow, why such a harsh word? Plagues of death? Yeah, well, it even starts with blood. Water turning to blood. And, and all of those frogs, what, do you, what happened to them? They became heaps of dead frogs. There were dead bugs and death of livestock. Even, even death of daytime. Like the death of the sunshine. Death of the firstborn. And death of the Egyptian army. In order for us to really appreciate all the life that is given in these laws, in these uh, expectation words of life, we have to remember the plagues of death. This would have been more fresh maybe for the people of Israel as they experienced it firsthand, as they actually saw the heaps of livestock and heaps of frogs as they felt the darkness, all of these things. But I, I wonder about us. You see, our only contribution to the rescue plan, our rescue plan is repentance. That, that's what, that's what, we're, what is required of us. When Peter is preaching the, that first famous sermon, right, in Acts chapter 2, he gets near to the end of his words and he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, brothers, what shall we do? You know what Peter said to them? Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What's the task? Yes, it's to remember all that God has done. And as you look back, repent. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your ways, your thoughts, the way you thought this life should be handled. In fact, Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 10 when he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This act of confession is acknowledging that the, the sin in your life is there and you need to turn away from it. This is the, the work of confession. This is what takes place in us. And so I wonder, maybe for you today, if, if you've ever truly repented. Have you ever been one who actually looks at your sin, looks at your story, looks at your life, says, I need to turn away. I need to turn away from, from my ways. Right, it's a 180 degree turn. It's a complete shift. Which, which leads us to this. 
not just remembering Egypt, but to remember allegiance. This is what repentance really is, right? It's changing allegiances. Before Christ, you are aligned or you are allegiant really just to yourself. You might even be able to say that you are God. You're the only one who makes the rules. Maybe you say, no, no, like I, I, I once obeyed my parents or I obeyed my teacher or I followed the instruction of my principal or my boss at work or uh, my supervisor, my manager, whatever the thing is. And so I've, I've always had somebody, but really all of that was just up to you, right? Yeah, you were pledging allegiance to those people. Yes, I will obey my parents and yes, but, but all of that is just saying I'm, I'm uh, having allegiance toward something else. And what this command is saying, you shall have no other gods before me because there's only the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is more than just a prohibition against worshiping lesser gods. It is an invitation into the reality that there is only one God at all. You see the difference? As we're going to approach it next week, we're going to think we're going to, he's going to uh, tell us not to like create or build or make, fashion our own idols the ones that even might look like, like we might think might look like the true God even. But that's not even, this is, this is more than that. This is part of repentance. Turn away from your sin, your hopes, your wants. Give up what you think is best. Embrace that you are not God. I don't, I don't know, uh, maybe that's something I need to say every week but I, I feel like I need to say it often to myself. Like you're, who do you think you are? Like you, you're not God. You don't get to make that decision. You don't get to make that call. No, he is God. You are not God because there is no other God. This is the statement. You, you can't have other gods before him if there are no other gods in reality. We can make up false gods, but we literally just called them false in their name. So there is only one true living God. Yahweh. We have heard his name, learned his name. Where we see anytime the Lord in your Bible is capital L and then small caps O-R-D, that is when we see the word Yahweh, his personal name. Our speech is monotheistic. But oftentimes our feelings are polytheistic, right? So monotheistic, one God, polytheistic, many gods, right? And, and you might ask, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, I think in a, in a room like this, if you came to church here today, 
you may agree with me that there is only one God. You may even agree with me that there is only one God and his name is Yahweh. Many of you are nodding your heads right now, yes. But then sometimes in our life, what we do is, is we feel like I need God and a spouse. I need God and a child. I need God and authority at my job. I need God and good health. I need God and a certain status or certain amount of money in my bank account or in my 401k, in my fill in the blank. Like we, we say, we add and to our thought about God. This one that we've said, he's the only one. He's the only God. But then in, in our feelings, in our thoughts, and sometimes even in our actions, we act like we can serve two masters, which Jesus has made very clear to us that Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I would add in there, you cannot serve God and your spouse. You cannot serve God and your children. You cannot serve God and desiring, like all of these things that we try to place even equal, if not higher, than God himself. So if, there's, if there really is only one true living God, and if it really is Yahweh, then there is only one true and right response to idolatry, and that is death. Even as you, you think about what you have the tendency to place as equal to or greater than God. I want to point out to you Colossians chapter 3. Where Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, with which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What is this again if it's not repentance? Like, right? We reject those things that we were having allegiance to. We, we reject ourself. We reject our sin. We turn away from our hopes and our dreams and our wants. We put all of those aside. Why? Because when we hope in Christ, he gives us the desires of our heart. Now, let me be clear, what that doesn't mean is that he gives you all the things you wanted back here. What it means is that he actually places new desires in your heart. And then surely, if they're from him, he will provide them to us. Ah, oh, see how this changes everything? I, I once wanted this, whatever the world had to offer. That's our nature. Our sinful nature is to, to take and to receive and to get all that that's there. But what repentance says is we're turning away from all of that and instead we're going to get and receive this law of the Lord, which is why we chose Psalm 19, which is perfect. What's good for us? Even verse 10 of Psalm 19, 
says that it is worth more than fine gold. Like it's, it's better than money. It's better than any of the things that we think might be good. So what do we do? We put to death all of the earthly things. We push aside. Putting to death something, like that's rejecting it entirely, completely. Now, now remember, if we are putting those things to death in the same way that God created heaps of frogs and heaps of flies and heaps of livestock to put to death even the daylight, that same God has the ability to put to death the lust in your heart. Same God has the ability to put to death the pride in your heart, the covetousness, all of the things that we're going to try to address over the next 10 weeks. He's the one who can put all of that to death, that which is earthly in us, that which seems like right to man, but the end of it leads to what? Death. So we, we remember Egypt, all that God did there. We remember allegiance and how we cannot have two allegiances. So we must look to the one by killing our own uh, sin, destroying that which has entangled us, and we remember God. Remember God himself. Look again at verse 2. This is, this is one of those parts for me, if you're one who uh, underlines things, it's good just to, to maybe circle or underline, Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your God. I'm declaring my name and my position is what God is doing. And telling you what I've done. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you, I'm the one who gave you freedom. I am the Lord, your God. Now, what's interesting is when you think about how we are connected to this God, he is the one who created us, right? We go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We have been image bearers since the garden, right? We are Made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. We have been made in the image of God. Again, Jen Wilkins says we were created in the image of God. The more we worship an idol, the more we will conform to its image. So to put to death an idol is to be restored to the image of God. Think about that. Uh... This takes place all the time uh, in, especially, think about family. I have four children, and two of my kids look a lot like me, and two of my kids look nothing like me, right? Except if you start to get to know them, their little personalities start to sound or look or make similar uh, responses as mom or dad would, right? If you aren't following me, I have a child from China and a child from India, okay? Uh, but, but their little personalities, 
uh, we call Lottie, she and Gloria are like two peas in a pod, right? They're, they're the ones that uh, they, they could sit in a corner by themselves and read a book and never be interrupted by a person and be totally satisfied, right? Uh, as you can imagine, that is not quite my personality. And, uh, and so Zeke, man, he's full speed, just like his dad. Like, he's been here a year, and he's my fault. <laughs> right? Uh, like, he's just constant, always moving, always got to do something. He's, like, never slows down. Uh, in fact, the boys are much, so much more like their dad, right? Uh, but, but this is what we see, right? So th- it's not that they're worshiping me, but the more and more they're around me, the more and more they act like me. Maybe, maybe there's even uh, people you find yourself imitating because you like them. The same thing happens with, with things like preaching or uh, with, with sports. You say, oh, I, w- I want to be like that quarterback. So what does that quarterback do? So you, you, they start acting like that quarterback. What does that basketball player do? Oh, so I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to speak the way they speak. I'm going to uh, throw the way they throw. I'm going to play the instrument the way they play the instrument, whatever it is. So wouldn't it make sense then that if we want to look more and more and more like Christ, that we would actually spend our time with Christ? But guess what happens when we place something else, when we put something else above God, then we begin to look more and more like that instead. Our, our image, because we're not talking about physical image, right? We're talking about mannerisms and soul image, right? We're talking about who we are, and our image begins to look and sound and feel more and more like the things that we have been supposed to put to death. But if, if we devote ourselves to the one that we have said has our allegiance, to the one that is Christ, then our image begins to look and sound like him, the one who is Christ. And it is this one who we will see the revealed image in heaven. Right, we have been image bearers since the garden, but we will see the revealed image in heaven. Listen to verse or chapter twenty-one of Revelation. This is near the end, right? Near the end of the book, but the, kind of the, the beginning of the story, really. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamb, it, lamp is the Lamb. This is a beautiful picture, right? Doesn't it just immediately make your mind start to think of, of walls of jewels, and streets of gold, 
pearly gates and crystal sea. And at first glance, it seems like the, the new heaven and new earth will be filled with the opulence of the day. Right? Like the best of the best of the best will be what we have there. We will see jewel-encrusted walls, pearly gate, a street of gold, and be amazed at all their glory. That's, that's what happens at first glance. But maybe instead, John is trying to show us in his description that the things we worship here on earth are mere dirt beneath our feet. He hinges on a gate, providing direction to the one who proves there is no one else like him. Have you ever thought of that? We like the idea of a street of gold. It's really just dirt. That, that's it's just a gold rock. Uh, we love the idea of this pearly gate. How, how, how often do you celebrate the, the hinges on your door? No, you don't. These, these, like the, the rocks that make up the wall, they're jewels. Do you know what they're intended to do? Not to, to point out our celebration of a street of gold or, or a jewel in a wall, but to point us to the one, the one true God. Everything else in this world and even in heaven pales in comparison. I wonder, have you been placing gold and pearls and jewels to a level that, that calls you to look to those things? Have you been working, thinking that you can earn your way, that if you will be able to present gold and pearls and jewels, then maybe it's not physical gold, but maybe it's the, the gold of, of your, uh, right, your perfections, your seeming righteousness, your legalism. You look and you say, oh, I'm, man, I'm looking at this list, Chad. This summer's going to be a breeze for me. I got that. Check that off the list. Done, done, done. Even in your perceived righteousness, we're reminded that there is no one like our God, like the God. So maybe you're one who doesn't know this God. Today would be the day for you to turn away from your sin, put to death things of this life and embrace the gift of Jesus. His death, His resurrection, what He provided for you. Maybe all of this is causing more questions for you. So in just a moment when we stand to sing, there will be some right here to my left that would love to talk with you, answer questions, pray with you, celebrate with you.
Maybe it is that you are a believer, but you know you've been getting things out of order. And so today, your response to him is, is to confess your sin. Say, I need, I need you to be the God that you are. I need to confess my sin before you and stop trying to put things above you. And maybe your response today is simply a response of worship. <laughs> Say, God, you do have all of the glory. You do have all of the honor. You do have all of the power. And so we praise you because you are the one and only God. Whatever your response is today, be obedient as the Lord would lead you. Stand with me as we respond.